Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Around 750 million people live on the European continent. So what about it? What will its future look like? Will there ever be a United States of Europe? For this and more, you will hear from European thought leaders, artists, civil society representatives, and all those who care about its future. You will receive key insights into the ways Europe is changing and how your voice can be part of this. I am Paolo De Stilo, and you're listening to Europe Matters. joined today by Marta Pardavi, who is a co-chair of the Hungarian Helsinki Committee. She holds a law degree from the ELTE Faculty of Law in Budapest, and she currently serves on the board of the Pilnet Hungary Foundation and the Versio International Human Rights Documentary Film Festival. And she previously served as a board member and later vice chair of the European Council on Refugees and Exiles from 2003 to 2011. Thanks to her civil rights uh, work, she's also been awarded the 2018 William D. Zabel Human Rights Award from Human Rights First, Civil Rights Defenders, Civil Rights Defenders of the Year 2019 Award, and was also chosen to be a member of Political 28 class of 2019 as a disruptor. So welcome. You're also right now in uh, Florence. How is it going? Well, good morning or good evening, everyone. Florence is always beautiful, but particularly now that uh, spring is in full swing, 27 degrees and sunny. I'm here at the European University Institute, which uh, is not only located in a beautiful uh, surrounding uh, hills in Fiesole, but also is an excellent place to talk about and think about Europe. Because of your work there, you've also participated at the State of the Union a month ago with together with the European uh, Institute, right? Yes. Uh, so I'm here on a fellowship, a policy fellowship at the School of Transnational Governance. And as part of this, I had um, a really uh, great opportunity to organize a panel discussion, a fringe event at this big flagship conference of the European University Institute, which is called the State of the Union and this was the 10th year that uh, the conference was put on. It was not in person, obviously, 
but uh, this way it could attract thousands of people. And um, during this uh, major event, all sorts of conversations, discussions, debates are going on about European topics. The fringe event I organized looked at alliances for protecting the rule of law and civic space in Europe. And this was linked to the to a project I'm working on. This project is called Recharging Advocacy for Rights in Europe, RARE. And um, I can tell you more about this, but um, the conference, um, the, the fringe event as part of the conference on the State of the Union looked at what is being done and who is doing it to, to stand up and work in alliance with others to protect the rule of law and civic space in Europe. There is a lot of discussion about the threats that these core European values or, or pillars of our democracy are facing. Um, but wait, maybe we focus um, less on who can work with whom. And so the, the focus of this event was to look at what's the role of civil society, members of the European Parliament, academics, uh, national human rights institutions. How can they work together doing their own uh, mandate, uh, but, but with the aim of linking up wherever possible in the most effective way? So that also goes in line with um, currently there's the ongoing conference on the future of Europe which is trying to foster a conversation around Europe to think about the future of Europe. But one of the things that stood out from this conference, except from its uh, not very user-friendly uh, website and uh, interface, is also the fact that their civil societies are not very much involved into this process, into this uh, participatory process. So... Have you uh, discussed that also as well during the State of the Union or with your peers, your uh, collaborators or other organizations? Yes, certainly. This is this is an evergreen topic. How can citizens actually participate fully um, in, in a democracy? It's such a cliche to say that participation does not equate to voting every few years. And there is far more in terms of of full-fledged participation. Um, yes, we looked at this in this um, panel discussion with uh, where we had an MEP, Gwendolyn Dalbus-Corfield, who's in the Libe Committee in the European Parliament. She's the rapporteur on the rule of law, um, fundamental rights file, the Article 7 file when it comes to Hungary. Um, Laurent Pesch, an academic, very prominent uh, EU law professor um, calling on rule of law protection, was also participating. And Adam Bodner, who is the now sadly outgoing ombudsman for citizens' rights in Poland. We, from our vantage points, we all talked about uh, the importance of citizens and civil society doing various um, roles, performing various very important roles in in. Um, in a democracy and in the in the European Union domain, this ranges from you know giving legal advice to individuals, doing advocacy 
at the national level, at the local level, and also towards European Union institutions. But also it means monitoring the performance of, of governments and the EU itself and being critical and being um, coming forward with suggestions. Specifically on this rule of law topic, of course, there is this um, annual uh, rule of law monitoring report that the European Commission publishes. The second uh, edition is supposed to come out in a few weeks' time. And here also civil society has a, a very important role, I believe, in supplying information to the European Commission about uh, what the what the independence of judges, the, the pluralism of media, the anti-corruption framework actually looks like in each of the member states of the EU. But the work doesn't stop here. And so we also have to follow up. And very often the question is, what happens with all this follow-up? Who's going to take it up? Uh, will there be any impact? And so this is becoming almost a circular cycle where civil society um, monitors, advocates, uh, demands, and acts on accountability and transparency, and also, of course, at the same time serves the citizens themselves. So it's a, it's a cycle between individuals and institutions and also between um, contributing information and monitoring what is being done with that information. Yeah, and also your personal experience as a co-chair of the Ungarian Helsinki Committee, you You've also faced a very difficult state to work to work in, and also how it did, developed and uh, towards the uh, the respect of civil rights. Also, the, there is a government that is putting laws that make it more complicated for you also to operate. Uh, there's also a uh, public uh, machine, we can say, media machine that is working against you. So, in that sense, we can say that. I don't know, we can discuss about this, but civil society has a very crucial role in kind of saying, hey, you're not behaving very well as to the government. Actually, it has at times maybe more power than a uh, voting, directly voting uh, specific people. I don't know. Is that a new way of how we should also think about democracies and how we should work in democracies to have different organizations, not only representations, but also civil society organizations? Look, when when um, uh, I started working at the Hungarian Helsinki Committee, that was quite a long time ago, in, um, in the, the late 90s, Hungary was such a promising place when it comes to uh, democracy and human rights and the whole region. And we saw this um, progress also uh, be recognized in the 2004-2007 accession of the Central Eastern European countries to the to the EU. Um, it is quite sad, but also upsetting, outrageous what is happening in many of these countries. But we have to also see how, um, while Poland and Hungary tend to be the most talked about when it comes to democratic backsliding and fundamental rights violations and rule of law threats on a, on a sort of systematic and systemic level, this is not uh, happening only in the so-called east of the EU. And 
in this sense, I think it's really great that the European Commission is doing um, an annual monitoring exercise of, of these issues across all the 27 EU member states. But it is uh, certainly the role of citizens and their groups to be concerned most with what is going on in their surroundings, in their local environment, in their national settings. And so whatever the EU uh, institutions are doing is crucial because it can strengthen pro processes, it can s assist progress, ideally, but it will always be up to citizens to, to ensure that um, their own rights, those of their communities, those of their um, fellow uh, neighbors are are being respected. And so in this sense, I think civil society has an extremely important role to play. And, and this is exactly why it is facing threats and pressures, um, particularly in Hungary, as, as you pointed out, but also in Poland. And, um, you know, just to, to, to give you a Sadly, a, a new alarm um, uh, ring in Slovenia as well. So wherever uh, the the voices, the critical voices, and the sharp and credible voices of citizens and their groups are perceived as threats, they will, of course, um, start facing pressures. It's awful to to witness this happening in the European Union. The EU for decades has been talking about human rights um, outside the EU, but I think finally um, there's been uh, a recognition that we have a serious problem with human rights within the EU itself. And this is absolutely, I think, a uh, um, this achievement that the human rights problems within the EU are being recognized is also uh, uh, the result of the of of the voices of citizens of civil society organizations mostly. Focus has always been outside for a long time uh, because we always thought Europe is this amazing uh, democratic place where nothing very bad happens, uh, but that's not. How it is. Um, so, uh, do you, are you going to focus on this part uh, in the coming year, com uh, connected with the conference on the future of Europe? Is that the um, the main uh, thing that you're going to fight for in this upcoming year? More uh, concern for human rights within the European Union? Yes, I think this is this is key. Uh, colleagues from Poland. And Hungary know very well how important it is that we don't take um, our human rights and and democracy granted. This realization, of course, has uh, sadly set in maybe a little bit too late, but it's never too late. I think to start working on 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 uh, protecting and 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 fortifying our democracies. But I see how most of these discussions tend to focus on national issues and take place in national contexts. And in this sense, um, the the project I mentioned earlier, this Recharging Advocacy for Rights in Europe, which is um, uh, a two-year project 
um, that's meant to empower 25 human rights organizations from 13 EU member states. This is uh, the, the aim of this project to revitalize uh, solidarity and alliance between human rights organizations within the EU, but also to encourage those that have until now maybe not been so active at EU level to also try to incorporate this angle, this perspective into their work. Because without um, uh, a, f- uh, a focus, a parallel focus at least, on what is happening at the EU level, we will not be a- able to achieve, I think, a substantive impact and lasting change. Since our countries and policies are quite strongly tied together, we'll see whether these uh, ties become looser or stronger over time. And that's a question of, of the political evolution within the EU. But as since we have these strong bonds, I think we also have to recognize that what happens in one country or a group of countries will absolutely impact everybody else in the EU. And this is, of course, also um, uh, the recognition, I think, behind this uh, conference on the Future of Europe platform for citizens that um, you, you, this, this gives you an opportunity to get ideas and messages across the EU in a way that um, physical meetings cannot um, allow for. So it's actually, it's just a, it's just a platform um, that makes conversations and initiatives more effective. And do you think also um, our neighbors that would like to join the European Union, are they also involved in these kind of projects or should they be involved as well in the Conference on the Future of Europe? Well, whatever Europe does has an impact elsewhere in the world. And we should not underestimate the impact that um, the signal of democratic regression happening within the EU itself, within certain EU member states, what this signals to other countries around the world, Um, also in our our closest neighborhoods. So when we look at, um, for example, the the countries of the Western Balkans who are aspiring for EU um, membership eventually, what kind of message does it send that there is rampant corruption Um, repression of free media, threats to civil society, threats to to minorities within the EU. How can we inspire others to to improve human rights protection, to strengthen rule of law if we ourselves are letting this slide? And so I think in this sense, it's very important to also have conversations between societies, not only governments, but societies, about how important um, it is to uphold our values, something that Europe should be extremely proud of. And um, But also we have to be frank and open about the, the fact that these values are not being upheld um, to perfection. And the causes for this and the potential solutions are also something we can discuss with with others beyond Europe. But we also, I think, when it comes to civil society resilience, for example, have quite a lot to learn from other countries. So being a Hungarian 
um, human rights uh, uh, organization, we at the Hungarian Helsinki Committee have found ourselves listening with with, uh, a lot of attention to what human rights defenders in Turkey, in Ukraine, in Russia, and I can go on, you know, Egypt <laughs> and, and, and many other parts of the world are saying what they're experiencing and how they're standing up against pressure. Because this is something where, um, sadly, Europe is, or certain European governments rather, are learning from autocracies beyond the EU. And so it's very important that we also have a discussion um, that it, where Europeans are listening to others Um, European civil society organizations and movements are listening to others beyond Europe because um, there is very important lessons and good practices out there. So these conversations absolutely have to be, you know, two two ways. Um, We can't, I think we have to let go of the idea that Europe is such an example. Um, In the past uh, few decades, we've seen um, great examples coming out of Europe, but not so great too. And so um, I think this is all the the, the more reason for for human rights organizations around Europe working at the national level to also come together because we have to to, um, build a strong alliance for protecting our rights, but also we have to make sure that if there is pressure um, in one mm, one scenario, one situation, one member state, then there's others who will speak up and act in solidarity um, with with these with these fellow Europeans of ours. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Is that also the goal of the recharging uh, project to kind of create also a network uh, that create that bonds all these organizations together? Our goal with this project is to both empower and, and build a solidarity alliance among human rights organizations that have so far maybe not had these links very strongly amongst ourselves, but also to provide very essential skills for doing advocacy in the EU. Obviously, um, if, if uh, an organization or community wants to take part in an EU-level discussion, then you need more than just to go to Brussels. <laughs> you um, Sometimes you don't even need to go to Brussels, but you need to know um, what people on the receiving end are thinking, what is relevant to them, how you can engage policymakers, decision makers in, in a, a discussion about human rights. So in this sense, we're um, organizing... Uh, workshops that focus on strategic foresight, on on sharpening communications of human rights organizations so that everybody becomes better at explaining both to the national constituents, but also to your advocacy um, interlocutors, what your, um, what your message is. We also want to make sure that um, there's rejuvenated engagement with some other human rights structures that are important in Europe, in our European space, not necessarily within the EU, but also in our larger European space. Um, the Council of Europe or the OSCE, these are frameworks where there is uh, quite a lot going on in terms of human rights protection, capacity building, but somehow many human rights organizations in Europe um, have not been taking advantage of these so much. And so we want to also provide a, um, a networking framework for these organizations from these 13 EU member states. And um, the project is organized together by the Hungarian Helsinki Committee, the Netherlands Helsinki Committee, and the Herti School in Berlin, which is a policy school. So this is the uh, an ideal place for, for you know, human rights um, groups, people who do human rights to, <laughs> to learn about what is the policy framework and what, are, what is the, um, the effective inroad to discussions happening in Europe. Activists from organizations can sign up to get lessons or newsletters on on this on the developments of this project. For the for the time being, we have already selected 25 organizations um, last summer as a as a result of an open call uh, for applications. And there is a website which um, is herty slash school.org pair rare recharging advocacy for rights in Europe and everybody can um, meet our, our rare group, um, the the individuals who are representing their organizations. But uh, I see that there's quite a lot of, of um, interest and need to broaden similar initiatives or this initiative over time. Uh, obviously, we have to start somewhere 
and we've identified 13 EU member states where civil society and rule of law is under some amount of pressure. Um, some are worse than others, but we have to uh, start working together. And also because of this solidarity idea, we need um, all sorts of groups in in a group in a in an alliance um, working together and getting to know each other. But there is quite a lot more to be done, and there is venues to to meet other groups in a similar situation. One of these venues is potentially the the Conference on the Future of Europe, but also the Fundamental Rights Agency of the EU is obviously the a convener of human rights organizations. Um, in fact, I should I should mention that the the Fundamental Rights Agency has been following, monitoring uh, civic space issues and the situation of human rights defenders within the EU, and has identified quite a lot of very alarming trends, not only happening in um, in Central and Eastern Europe but beyond there too. So we see how civic space um, is under pressure in um with a very few exceptions in almost all of the EU. Yeah, for for example, um a month ago I interviewed Reb Rebecca Homperts from Women on Waves and Women on Web who give gives abortion pills uh to places where it's needed. And uh for example, uh she they actually their website was being banned in Spain. So the Women on Web website was being uh, co- uh actually um, blocked off by various uh, telecom uh, agencies like Oni or Vodafone. So um, we are there is new ways of uh, we can say censorship, but also uh, discrimination taking place in different forms. It's not only physical; it's also digital. So uh, what you're mentioning, also the space, civil space. I also see the civil space online is very important. Is actually essential if we want to uh, create this uh, conversation ongoing and spe- and, and uh, COVID has actually shown that we can do a lot online. Uh, not everything because we need to see each other face to face. But I think there we can use the tools that has been given to us during this year to kind of create uh, these new collaborations and also making things a little bit faster or uh, easier. What do you think? Do you think it, it also helped to maybe create a better process in certain aspects? Well, the, the digital tools that we've had to use even more than before in the, in the past year, I think are helpful in many ways. They can make um, knowledge and conversations far more accessible than previously. So even within our, our rare group, uh, we've been able to, to start connecting um, online uh, in, a, in, in, in Zoom calls, of course. Um, but not everything can be done online. I, I fully agree. And uh, I really think that physical meetings are extremely important to to build lasting um, connections between people. 
but at the same time, of course, a lot of things have opened up. And for example, on um, the the EUI's conference in the uh, on the State of the Union normally takes place in beautiful settings in Florence, but it's not as publicly accessible. And I think um, going forward, uh, we have to maintain this balance of of trying to use hybrid formats for these conferences. It's also great that one can, you know, go to all sorts of webinars and and really soak up learning and new information very easily now. Things that uh, would have been maybe inconceivable just a few years ago are happening. That's great. But we also, as you pointed out, can see the threat. So what if at one point, a conversation about the rule of law in a particular member state would be, you know, cut off, uh, or would, or, or uh, individuals who are participating in a conversation would be seeing some sort of re- repercussions. This is what's happening outside the EU, um, where people really have to be careful of what they say online as well as offline. But we don't want this happening in the European Union. Um, and so I think there is quite a lot of responsibility, not only the private companies, which also should um, uphold our, our you know, constitutional freedoms, but also the governance structures to recognize that they have to make sure that these private enterprises don't impose undemocratic practices. There's quite a lot of discussions going on. Um, about this. I think it's important for human rights organizations also to, to, to follow, but not only human rights organizations. So ideally, we would have a, a strong movement um, of citizens and, and civil society organizations, formal and informal, ensuring that um, the conversations that are happening in the digital space, widen our freedoms and not narrow them. But we also have to be, I think, very mindful of the of the of the threats and um, dangerous potential that the digital space has um, when it comes to hate speech or extremism, um, ideas that are being um, not only spread but also sometimes. Uh, resulting in in actual violence, action in the in the offline space or or even online, um, we have to really find a a very smart balance um, and the best tools for this. It's an exceptionally difficult um, uh, issue to ensure that freedom remains and violence and hate uh, is not given more space. Democracy uh, is trying to find a balance uh, because everybody has to have their say, uh, but you don't want to trespass the limits of each other. And more autocratic states, they can be more efficient in specific actions, uh, but that t- those actions will take away uh, specific freedoms. Um, so I think um, also I'm going to also <laughs> join in the conversation. Uh, there's... Uh, a lot of uh, talks uh, already. The fact that the Europe has the GDPR uh, has already set a big milestone 
regarding to privacy uh, rules uh, on a European level, which actually also changed the behavior of American companies within the US on cookie uh, uh, policies and stuff like that. Um, so I think there are potentials for Europe to really leverage its position to change how private companies can collaborate also with civil society in ways of promoting and actually allowing uh, freedom. Um, so I think the future, at least that's my perspective, but then I would like to know your perspective. If it's more, I'm more hopeful, but maybe you have a more bleaker uh, perspective is that we are going to find new ways on how we can use all these different tools uh, to really re leverage and find a new kind of citizenship and create a new kind of uh, European identity. We could even say where there is not anymore those strict national borders, which we saw being implemented during the COVID pandemic. But afterwards, everybody realized that doesn't work. It doesn't work by closing borders because still uh, COVID moved around. It's not something like an invisible wall, uh, like um, with Chernobyl, when everybody thought that it stopped, that the gases would stop at the <laughs> Europe, Eastern uh, European border. And so the, the narratives are changing. So um, what would you say we should look at um, in for the future? Uh, what's the your piece of advice to really find uh, the best way to go forward the issues that you just raised are extremely um, important but they're also very broad and um, on the digital rights issues I'm certainly no expert but I I have a list of great organizations and individuals I'm happy to share with others about who the 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 you know the digital rights experts are in civil in, in civil society in Europe one of the most important slogans that I've uh, found extremely useful is um, is that digital rights are human rights. So we should not be sort of confused by this digital space. It's a space where human rights exist and they need enforcement mechanisms just the same. They need people to speak up for for these rights to to value them, and there will be violations of them as everywhere. Um, and so we need to make sure that there is a good framework that will enforce human rights in the digital space too, um, that people understand how it works. So I, th I find this a, a rather reassuring message in fact because it takes away the the tax savviness the requirement to really you know know how algorithms work it just says that discrimination is discrimination no matter where it's happening and we have to stand up for it and we have to have the right ways and means to do this if we don't have them we have to develop them but from this rights-based framework and I and I think that's a quite good guidance on borders um, I mean, borders are going to remain, I think, a very hot topic in Europe um, for the next um, for the next many years. Uh, they borders are are um, in a way artificial constructs, uh, but they are real and also are extremely um, good to 
they're they're ripe for exploitation by politicians. I see that from Hungary, how border protection and this focus on on um, fueling hate, um, cooking up enemies, uh, using public funds to run to to run xenophobic campaigns against the other or the or the conceived other and employing borders as a notion in this has become um, a very uh, often used tool and an actually pretty effective tool, political tool, by um, the Hungarian prime minister's government. And it's happening elsewhere too. So the question of borders and who can cross them, who has the right to cross them, until COVID hit, um, seemed to affect people beyond the EU, right? We as European Union citizens um, didn't need to think of all the difficulties. Uh, and in the past year, all of a sudden we see we cannot travel. If you want to travel, you have to secure all sorts of papers and tests, and it's very costly and it's extremely cumbersome. Uh We're still not traveling, although things are looking up and brighter. So I think we now can understand maybe a little bit more how difficult it can be for others um, who are not, who happen to be born elsewhere. When we're frustrated by, by the, by these difficulties, these cumbersome requirements in COVID times that prevent us from fully and freely exercising our freedom of movement in the EU, we can, I think, better appreciate how difficult it is for others. For Hungarians and anyone from, from the former Eastern Bloc, of course, um, at least our parents, uh, if not we ourselves, remember how difficult it was to go to the West. And the sigh of relief, um, as we hear it in stories, the sigh of relief of having crossed into Austria without being, you know, uh, basically um, harassed by Hungarian border guards. This is a different era. The, the restrictions on our freedom of movement are not necessarily political, but they're very real. And we're all hoping that they will be lifted. I think this uh, kind of constraints reminds us of Of, of realities that other people around the world are experiencing and they have no hope of having these restraints um, be eliminated. Thank you very much, Marta. This, uh, I think you just uh, pinpointed a very important fact to why people should actually think about the future of Europe because it really challenges uh, the way we, we live and also how we uh, co-live with other citizens around Europe and also how we can move around. Uh, I want to thank all the audience who's been listening to us right now. Um, please check out the work of uh, the Hungarian Helsinki Committee and also the Recharging Project. Uh, you're going to find all the details into the description in the on the website. Uh, thank you very much, Marta. Uh, have a great day and uh, talk to you soon. Thank you also very much. And... Have a great day wherever you are. Um, and uh, I look forward to listening to the other podcasts too.
Thank you all for listening to this episode of Europe Matters. Special thanks goes to my assistant producer, Antonio Mattesini. Let us know who we should interview next by writing a comment and sharing it with your friends on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn using the handle at Europe Matters. Don't forget to leave a review on whichever podcast streaming platform you use. And if you really like this show, the best way to support us is by making a donation on patreon.com. You can learn more at www.europematters.com. Speak to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.